Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 2nd, 2023. I'm on the road today in London. New month, October 2023, but old themes. Nothing seems to change, particularly in the way in which we in the West and particularly in the United States think of China. Headline today, Ron DeSantis looking for something to save his uh, political campaign as Republican candidate for president is invoking the China boogeyman, according to The Guardian. Surprise, surprise. Uh, Everyone seems to pick on the Chinese these days, not just DeSantis, Joe Biden as well. And I think that will be a message that unites both left and right in America and center, the danger of China to the West and to America more broadly. Meanwhile, we're still in awe of Chinese innovation, of technology. A CNN headline today is about China debuting its first overwater high-speed train. Chinese infrastructure, of course, uh, is in vivid contrast to the absence of infrastructure in the United States. We've done a number of shows on Xi's China, uh, not just from conservatives, but also from liberals. Orville Shell's been on the show a couple of times. Uh, America, one of America's um, leading sinologists, people who are experts on China, very distinguished, long career as a journalist, uh, some of it based in China. He seems very disappointed, personally disappointed also, almost with Xi. Um, and we're all fearful of Chinese surveillance. You bring China and technology together. You have this supposedly new Orwellian system. Perhaps the fear of China, the American fear of China brought it all together was with, a, on our show at least, was a show about something called America Second with a, a journalist, Isaac Stonefish. He has a new book out um, about how American elites are making China stronger. It's almost a return to McCarthyism and the fear of the Soviet Union in the 1950s. Um, and I wonder whether... The view of China is quite as paranoid from Europe. Uh, Gilles uh, uh, is a very distinguished French uh, historian and sinologist, and he has a new book out, Contemporary China. It came out in France um, in 2018. It's just been translated into English. Contemporary China, 1949 to the present, um, which, of course, covers the history of Chinese communist regime, and Gilles is joining us from Paris. Uh, Gilles, uh, congratulations, not on the new book, on the English translation. Um, is there paranoia broadly, do you think, in uh, Gilles, in, in, in the United States, both on the left and the right, about Xi's China? Well, I have to confess, Andrew, that uh, I was in the U.S. Uh, over the last spring, spring 2023, uh, based in Cornell for two months, and, you know, reading, reading the press. Actually, I've been reading the, the American press uh, since Joe Biden was elected. And, and you know, and, and reading American press is, is not as, as depressing as it used to be. And, and I'm really surprised, I mean, as a European and maybe as a French, by the obsession of, of, of U.S. media, maybe journalists, and maybe, I don't know, public opinion by, by, by China. I mean, 
as a European and, and as a French, you know, coming from a, a small country which has its you know, brilliant uh, uh, presence in the world in the past. I mean, France is now a, 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 a small country with small means of actions at the you know, level of the world. Are you the only Frenchman, Gilles, who, who, who thinks of France as a small country? I always thought most Frenchmen thought they were rather large. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> let's be reasonable. I mean, we, we, we can count in the world if we act as Europeans with other European nations. But we, we don't count if we act uh, individually, and especially when we when we deal with China. So what I mean is that you know the fact that China is becoming imperialistic, the fact that China is uh, the second world economy, and that China might one day become uh, the first world economy is not a problem to Europeans. I mean. Uh, uh, there was a time when Europe was number one. There was a time when U.S. was number one, and maybe one day China will be number one. So what's what's the what's the problem? I mean, you know, this is history uh, being made. Uh, so, I mean, I think that the question is, what can we do with China, and we should act. We should deal with China because most global problems have, you know, either take roots in China itself or whatever happens in China concerns the world, the, the whole world. And, and, and this is very different from what used to be, you know, 50 or, or 60 or uh, years ago, because China used to be closed, a closed country, a country where no one uh, could travel in the 1950s, in the 1960s. So, you know, what what would happen in China would not concern the world, but this is this is no longer the case. Whatever happens in China concerns all of us. Gilles, um, I, I don't want to pick on Orville Shell. I actually think he's a lovely man and very smart, very articulate, very learned. But what do you make of liberals like Shell? Their disappointment of of, of China, contemporary China, particularly of Xi Jinping. But of course, I mean, and 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 uh, I feel myself that you know uh, we ha we share a responsibility in the fact. I mean, as as a China specialist, of uh, imagining that um, uh, dealing with China, being involved with China, working in China and with China would bring China closer to or practices to our ideals and um, you know as an academic uh, we have welcomed um, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of young Chinese students on our campuses and it's still very much the case today with the hope that it would uh, bring China closer to uh, to us to our political and economic systems and, and we have failed, but we have failed because we probably mistake, were mistaken. And uh, because we wrongly assume uh, that uh, China, in a sense, uh, was uh, not concerned by uh, its you know, global ambitions. And um, so, there, I mean, my assumption is that the responsibility is or so if we are disappointed and we i mean i am disappointed uh 
I mean, I, I would blame myself first before blaming what has happened in China itself, because we had the wrong interpretation of what was going on there. You say you're disappointed. Did you fall into the end of history camp who believed that every uh, all roads lead to a, a liberal modernism, a globalization after the fall of the communist regimes in Eastern Europe in 89, early 90s, and the liberalization of the Chinese economy? No, of course, that's, you know, I, I have, um, I, I mean, I, I've never, I mean, I, I strongly believe that China is going through its own historical trajectory and that this trajectory does, has no reason to lead to a political or economic and social system closer to our system. So I, I strongly believe that, you know, there are various ways to be a modern country. And, uh, you know, what China uh, proves uh, uh, very clearly is that you can be authoritarian and you can be highly competitive in the global economy. But where's your disappointment then? Or, uh, where do you feel as if, as um, a man who's, dedicated his life to studying the country. I mean, you know, to go, to go back to the, the issue of, uh, you know, uh, the academic world and, 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 and academics exchanges and, and, and students uh, traveling to Western campuses. I think we had the idea uh, that, uh, I mean, I had the idea that uh, of, of uh, academia being, you know, uh, transmitting some kind of humanist, humanistic uh, message and that you know that we sh we, we would share uh, this humanistic attitude to all toward uh, the world and, and and global issues, whereas probably uh, young adults, uh, young Chinese adults traveling to uh, Western University have had this very instrumental perspective of you know going abroad. They come here to learn new knowledge, then bring it back to China, and probably are not in the position to make the Chinese system evolve in a direction that they might you know, prefer. And we have been, and I have probably been very wrong in assuming that these, I mean, the, the, the increase of exchanges between China and the rest of the world, which is one of the greatest achievements of these last decades, um, would, uh, you know, bring us, you know, looking into, uh, together uh, in the same direction. And it's obviously not the case. I want to get to your history, uh, Gilles, because I think that will make sense of the present. But just a focus again on, on your theme of a lot of Chinese students coming to the West. We've done some shows about the way in which some people, particularly in Washington, D.C., believe that Chinese Communist Party or the secret police are somehow financing and sponsoring a lot of these students. Uh, and this is one of the themes un um, driving, I think, this reinvented Cold War. Is there any truth to that, do you think? Is are, are some of these Chinese students who are coming to Western universities, whether in Paris or London or New York, 
Um, are they somehow being controlled one way or the other by the party or by the bureaucracy in, in Beijing? Yes, the, the Chinese state apparatus and, 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 and the, 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 the party itself have developed a very sophisticated system of, um, I don't know if you should, I should say controlling or surveying Chinese uh, abroad. So, uh, you know, to give a, an example that, you know, in, in many, many of these students come for doctoral studies and uh, many of them have, are funded by the Chinese state and, um, uh, and generously funded by the Chinese state. Uh, but uh, the counterpart of this funding is that they have to abide to a certain number of objectives defined by the state. Um, and that may, you know, include, um, uh, you know, some kind of you know, espionage or... So, you know, we've probably been very naive in, this, uh, in the past. And uh, I guess, you know, in, during the last years or, and, and, and we are, getting more and more concerned and, and, and talking about the French case. And, and I can testify that the French state is now very concerned about what the students come, I mean, coming from China do in on all campuses. I know it's an issue in particular that seems to be true in Australia. A couple of other broad questions before we get to your history. Where are we, Gilles, on the development of this supposed surveillance state in China, this digital panopticon that Xi seems to be building? Yes, that, it's, it's a fascinating issue. Uh, it's a fascinating issue that we should look at uh, with, um, you know, uh, not necessarily looking at it from all perspective. If you think of, you know, as, you know, Chinese ordinary citizens have to experience um, uh, you know, a, 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 a very large or systematic lack of trust. There is a, which is uh, problematic in a market economy and what you, we should call market society as well. I mean, the, I'm talking about the Chinese economy and the Chinese society. People don't trust each, each other. People don't trust the state. Uh, people don't trust institutions. And uh, from an ordinary Chinese citizen perspective, this uh, digital surveillance system is a way to solve the trust crisis because people will be under surveillance and, and they, they won't be able to cheat each other to the, uh, the level that they have been able to do uh, in the recent years. So, I mean, we look at it talking about surveillance and control. But, you know, uh, uh, we should look at it also in the sense that it contributes to uh, building trust in the Chinese society, which is a key issue because you cannot, you know, a, a, a market economy and a market society cannot go on without trust, without systematic, systemic trust. And that's a way to build systemic trust. So I'm, I'm, you know, just want to do that. Want to underline that there is also the positive way of looking at the system. I'm not, I'm not denying the fact that people are under surveillance, but I'm also saying that, you know, it but is. But isn't that? 
it is also a solution to a very uh, important social and economic problem. But doesn't that get close to embracing the formal ideology of the state that they have to do this to create civic virtue on the part of citizens? We, we could certainly do the same in the United States and probably in France and the UK too. To make people more trusting, they need to be watched by the state. Wasn't that the original Benthamite assumption that led but, to all I mean, sorts of is, nightmares? Yes, yes. But, you know, I, you know if, I, if, I, if I talk about the French case, I mean, of course, there is a, a long history of the society protesting against the state. Um, whereas in China, you know, uh, you are... People have been raised and, and to abide by state regulations. So, um, you know, what, what is part of, you know, the political culture here in Europe is, 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 is completely strange to a Chinese citizen. I mean, as a Chinese citizen, what you, uh, what you are worried about is that is, is about the ability of the state to keep the society stable and to uh, generate prosperity. So if the society is stable and if you have prosperity, then you're willing to accept uh, what we may consider here as a too heavy price. And final question, Gilles, before we get to the, the history on the Uyghurs, it's dominating a lot of the anti-Chinese uh, thinking in the West. How big a deal is it, both obviously from the point of view of these minorities and also from a broader Chinese context? Well... <laughs> From, you know, from a, a long, you know, if I look at for afar, I would say that, you know, Chinese um, Western provinces, you know, Xinjiang and Xijiang, so Tibet and, and Xinjiang, uh, have been, you know, are, are colonies of the Chinese uh, thankful authorities. And, and it has been the case for, you know, one or two centuries. So the Chinese, the Communist Party, is in, in dealing with these minority populations is in a sense, you know, acting very much like the Republican or the, Repub the, or the Imperial state was acting centuries ago. So it's, it's you know, they are colonizing these uh, large Western regions, which have a, which have a very strong geostrategic interest. Uh, just like we, I'm talking about the Western, Western European countries, used to colonize uh, 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 North Africa. So, I, I, you know, in, in, my in front of my students, I usually say that what, what Chinese, China is doing in, in Xinjiang and Tibet is what France has failed to achieve in North Africa. So Xinjiang uh, is, uh, is Algeria. It's a fascinating argument. We are talking with... Uh, Gilles uh, Zhu, the uh, author of an important new book on China, contemporary China, 1949 to the present. Um, fascinating conversation, Gilles. Uh, is the book 
in your history, are you trying to, in some ways, normalize Chinese history and suggesting that the history over the last 60 or 70 years has really been one of conventional modernization and that the Communist Party is a, is a classically modernizing agency, political organization, driven to, to transform China into a modern competitive state? Yes, in a sense, that's true, because I, I, I really, uh, try, I'm really trying to des-exoticize China. I mean, when I talk with my colleagues in China, they're very, I mean, I would, I would say that they are very China-centered. They, they, they always argue that China is unique, that notably because of the size of uh, the country and of the population. Uh, phenomena that are uh, happening in China have never happened elsewhere. But this is not the case. I mean, what we have um, witnessed in China, especially along the last 40 years, I mean, since the reforms were launched in the late 70s, um, is, you know, the story is about urbanization, industrialization, uh, and, 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 large migration of, of rural inhabitants to uh, cities. This has happened elsewhere in, in, in the world history. So uh, I think you know, my, one of the arguments of the book is that uh, at the end of uh, uh, 30 years of communism, of, of Maoist uh, rule uh, in the late 70s, 80s, China was very unique in the sense that it had, it had tried to industrialize without urbanization. I mean, Mao Zedong and other leaders were very much concerned that, you know, uh, a flow of uh, rural population arriving in metropolises would destabilize the Chinese society. So they were they, they tried to... Uh, immobilize the Chinese populations. Those who were born in the cities were able to grow in the to grow up and, and in, in the cities, but those who were born in the countryside were not allowed to move. And this had never happened before in, in human history. I mean, modernization is related to uh, rural to urban areas migrations, migrations. So China tried a very unique model during the Maoist era, and obviously China failed. So the, the history of what we have seen along the last uh, 40 years is just China coming back, with, I mean, to, to, to a trajectory that has been shared by, by most um, uh, modern, modern uh, society and modern uh, economies. So in a sense, China has become a very, in a sense, uh, an ordinary country. I, I'll give you another example. I mean, uh, what China, China, I mean, besides the fact that China is an authoritarian regime, I mean, the main concern of the Chinese authorities on a daily basis is to promote prosperity, as I, I was saying a while ago, which is exactly the same concern of any democracy in the Western world. I mean, all governments are eager to, 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 uh, to create wealth on a daily and on a yearly basis. And the Chinese state is just doing the same. 
you're not a Russian scholar, but I'm curious, uh, Gilles, would you make the same argument about Stalin, about collectivization in the 1930s? I mean, um, China has, of course, you know, in, in the early 50s, uh, China imported um, uh, strategies from the Soviet Union, but not so much because the Chinese leaders were convinced that these strategies were appropriate for the Chinese case, uh, but because Chinese leaders had no other options. I mean, the option of uh, working with the West was not open. So the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the only uh, leaders that were you know, ready to work with Chinese were uh, the Soviet Union and its allies. So, um, and, the, and, and they believed indeed that uh, collectivization would uh, help um, in, in the development of agriculture and, and give the state the capacity to um, uh, transfer resources from the countryside to urban areas, which actually the Chinese state achieved to a certain level. So, I mean, collectivization and, 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 I, would, and I would add, you know, communism in a sense was very instrumental to the Chinese state. Are you suggesting then to most people in the West who are, for better or worse, liberals, that they need to get over their horror with uh, the show trials, the cultural revolution of the 1960s, if they're to make sense of China? I mean, uh, no, I mean, we should not forget what has happened in the 60s and the Cultural Revolution, because Chinese leaders, Chinese today's leaders, have been uh, uh, intellectually shaped by, by what had hap has happened in the 1960s. Some of them, including Xi Jinping, has experienced being sent to the countryside. And uh, so it's not only Chinese leaders, but also you, you, you could add, you know, uh, some of the Chinese members of the Chinese elites, economic elites, who have suff badly suffered. Right. Uh, and, Xi, uh, and even Xi Jinping, I mean, his, his father suffered. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, the, the, the trauma um, of the Cultural Revolution is, uh, uh, you know, has... Uh, uh, tremendously have left a tremendous influence on the Chinese society and the way people behave. And you know, one—I'll give you one very concrete example. Do you know that there is no inheritance tax in China? I mean, China is a communist country when billionaires can freely transmit their wealth to their inheritors without any tax. And, you know, one possible explanation for these, uh, you know, for this rather unexpected feature of the Chinese uh, welfare system or the absence of redistribution through inheritance tax is because families were so much, you know, uh, damaged during the Cultural Revolution that it's, it's pretty hard today to implement uh, inheritance tax. How does People it are very reluctant and very willing to protect what, what families have been able to achieve. How does the China 
experience the what you call contemporary china 1949 2023 how does it compare with the history of taiwan then i mean are they really addressing identical issues but approaching the challenges of modernity in a different kind of way because it sounds to me in in terms of your argument as if quote unquote the communist party is essentially irrelevant or the concept of communism is irrelevant um i'll make one comment before answering your question i mean the whole region and you know mainland china and taiwan have been looking to japan with envy i mean think of you know what 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 the japanese were able to do in the early 20th century they were able to defeat the russian army and to uh, basically destroy the pacific uh, uh, marine of uh, 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 the Russian Pacific Marine. So uh, Japan, uh, earlier than China, was able to tra transform itself, rebuild itself, and, and become itself a, an imperialist country. So Chinese political, intellectual elites have been looking at what has had happened in Japan for centuries. Then when it comes to the uh, common points or difference between Taiwan and uh, China. I mean, uh, of course, you know, what, what a main difference is that uh, the uh, when Chiang Kai-shek moved to the tiny island of Taiwan, he was defeated, and he 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 had been defeated on the uh, on the mainland, and he arrived as a conqueror, and he. Uh, um, established a very uh, uh, harsh and 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 and, and policy uh, based uh, police based uh, regime persecuting uh, opponents and 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 um, and he, you know he he was able to his regime was able to survive only because you know the United States decided. Uh, to support uh, the Republic of China, uh, so it's it's like it's it's the historical context that you know the the, uh, um, the Cold War that explains that you know at the end Chiang Kai-shek was able to and his regime was able to survive, but they, you know that that was not you know for sure uh, in the very early days of uh, Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek's moves to Taiwan. Uh, then another, you know, another element has to be taken into account. Uh, after the death of Chiang Kai-shek, uh, suddenly Taiwan's, I mean, the Republic of China authorities realized that they were obviously lacking legitimacy, lacking legitimacy in Taiwan itself. And they were contested by a growing number of people on the island, starting first with intellectuals, and also uh, losing legitimacy in, uh, at, the, at the international level. And then, I mean, uh, uh, they were smart enough to believe that they could play the card of democratization. And they successfully played that card and democratized Taiwan, who has become the only fully democratic Chinese state in the world. 
And, and so that's why I, we should very much, very strongly support Taiwan and, and, and make that unique experience uh, prosper and develop. I think because it's useful for the, it's useful for China. And perhaps even for the West in terms of their innovation when it comes to democracy. We're talking to Gilles uh, Giu, the author of Contemporary China, 1949 to the Present. One uh, excellent new publication, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, is, uh, often has interesting pieces on China. I want to remind everyone about the value of Liberties. I'm going to run a short uh, ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back to finish with uh, Gilles Giraud uh, about both uh, the contemporary history of, of China and, of course, its future. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking uh, with Gilles Gio from Paris, uh, the author of Contemporary China, one of France's leading scholars of, of China. Uh, Gilles, in your attempt to, de, uh, to, to borrow some language from you, de-exoticize China, are you also de-exoticizing this great power clash between China and the United States. seems almost inevitable in your analysis that China wants to become a great power, it, uh, driven by urbanization, bureaucratization, globalization, and now it's clashing with the United States. Is that logical and inevitable? I think uh, what we should pay attention to are the issues that is at stake with the Chinese growing power on the international level. And maybe, you know, th that may be, uh, I mean, it's not, we know very well what uh, the, China, the American empire, if you want to call it that, that way, uh, was keen at promoting. I mean, they, the, the, the American uh, empire was keen at promoting democracy, I don't know, more or less, uh, 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 um, human rights, and uh, I mean, we can, and, and we could go on. Whereas in the Chinese case, it is not yet so clear uh, what are the universal value or the universal message that the Chinese state and the, and, and the, and the uh, Communist Party are eager to promote at the international level. I mean, for the, and it's, I mean, behind the nice uh, rhetoric about, you know, building a, a, a harmonious world, and it seems that, you know, China is mostly keen at promoting its own, you know, uh, economic interest and, 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 uh, being sure that uh, you know they they they, they control enough uh, agricultural or, or, or mining resources uh, or protect their markets, but in terms of universal message, what what is the Chinese state proposing to the rest of the world? I I think 
the answer is not yet so clear. And, that, and you know, that's, what I, and that's what I'm interested in. I mean, I'm not, I'm not concerned about the fact that China may become uh, the first uh, global power. I'm concerned about what is behind the, being a global power. What do they want to promote at the international level? And, and are we able... Uh, are, are we isn't really that, in your analysis, isn't that inevitable, whether it's China or India or Japan or the United States or Germany and France and the United Kingdom in the 19th century? Yes, I mean, I, 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 in a sense, you know, I, 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 I don't think a reason to panic that we, I mean, as you, as you, as a European, as you know, we started uh, commenting that as a, as Europeans, we are already second-rank states, and and we have to admit that, and we have to live with it. Then you know, then we have to, I mean, what 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 have European states tried to imagine? We have tried to work together. In, in order to promote something that we could call, you know, a European model of society uh, that is slightly different from the American model of society, and and um, and uh, I think that we sh for sure we should not give up the idea that uh, this model could prevail. So I'm not saying that we should uh, agree with China that Chinese. Uh, models should prevail on our models. But my question is, what, I'm not very sure what is the Chinese model up to now. It's, it's not so clear. What do Chinese diplomats promote? When well, you they... don't know who does. <laughs> I think it's, 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 the question is not, being, is not answered. There was a famous moment, I think it was when Nixon went to Peking, which was, of course, back then called Peking, I think with Henry Kissinger and they were talking about when well, Kissinger asked, was it, um, uh, was it, uh, I don't think it was Mao. It may have been Zhang uh, Jimin about uh, his opinion of the French revolution. And he famously said, uh, I don't know. It's too early to tell. Are you suggesting that the same is true of the Chinese revolution is that we simply don't have the distance to make sense of what's happened in China? Oh, for sure. What we don't know is, is uh, where China is heading. I mean, that's for sure. We know where China comes from, but we don't know the destination. And because, I mean, history is about the fact that there, there is no clear destination, neither for China nor for us. I mean, all societies are, you know, on the move constantly. Yeah, we know they got a high-speed train, so they're going somewhere, Gilles, right? I mean, right now, if you look at, you know, what has happened in the last year or last two or three years, I mean, many questions are suddenly raised about China. You know, the population is decreasing, the unemployment is, is growing, uh, growth is, uh, economic growth is slowing. I mean, there are so many challenges that the Chinese authorities have to face that nothing is for sure in the future. Nothing is for sure. Well, let's end with two visions then of a, a narrative of, of where you'd like China to go. Take off your liberal hat. We, we've got beyond the naivety of assuming that China's just going to become like us. But where would you like China to go? And where would you fear China going in the 2020s and 2030s? You know, I think that one of the great... Um, consequence of the last uh, 30 or 40 years of, of exchanges 
was the opening of China and the increase, I mean, the tremendous level of exchanges between China and the rest of the world, starting with the US. I mean, the number of Chinese citizens living in the US is incredible. So, uh, and, um, and I think that's, we should, for sure, we should work at protecting this, the intensity of our relations with, and, and exchanges with China, what I would fear most would be the closing of the country and, and, and going back to a China that has disappeared, that the China that was ignoring the rest of the world. And I think, you know, um, what, we had to, what we should fear is indeed the closing of China.